Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles with you, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to anchor ourselves for the majority of our uh, morning together. But before we get there, I just kind of want to give us a bit of a refresher. Over the last couple of weeks, last three weeks, we've walked through uh, the mission statement, if you will, of Mercy Hill Church. That statement is, follow Jesus, make disciples. It's incredibly simple because we are convinced that the Christian life is actually rather simple. The whole premise is that we fix our eyes on Jesus and in that in our fixing our eyes on Christ, then there are natural repercussions. So the first week we examined Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 and considered that the imitation of Old Testament saints, if we were to imitate anything, it is in their faith that they looked forward to the person and work of Christ and that we now and in every moment of our life lay hold of Jesus by faith, looking unto him in everything that we do. Our aim is to simply love and rejoice in the life that we have in him, to have eyes fixed on Christ, never break gaze. Blake walked us through what ordinary obedience looked like, how we are to follow Jesus in every, every moment of the day, but not so much the extravagant or the radical obedience, just the normative working out of everyday life. Being a faithful follower of Jesus often, and I think perhaps most normatively, is in the just normal everyday life the constant looking unto him and longing to be obedient to him in all of our ways. Last week, we examined the concept of evangelism. How is it that we are to make disciples? Well, the first way that we are to make disciples is by preaching the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, not offering them gimmicks, not offering them anything, not not doing a marketing bait and switch, but instead offering the people in the world that we come in contact with Christ. And that that offer, should, should, he be, should he delight to draw them into himself, then he will do it amidst that offer, that we bring them the gospel. Now that does lead us to the last step here, and it's really built into their phrase, it's really built into the, the, the makeup of this body, is discipleship. That in everything we do, we are aiming to do something specific. What are we aiming to do as a local church? What should every local church be aiming to do? Friends, it's rather simple. It's to make disciples. It's to teach people what Christ has commanded. It's to teach them what the scripture is teaching, that they might be mature, that they might grow up into their head who is Christ. Everything that we do as a local church, everything that we should be doing in our day-to-day life as we interact with others should be to some degree disciple-making. It should be this desire in our souls to point people to Jesus. If they are unbelievers, then we point them to Jesus through evangelism. And if they are believers, we point them to Jesus through discipleship, through training. We want them to see and to behold Christ more deeply. The whole premise of what we do as a local body and secondly as Christians and saints is to teach and to point people to the finished work of Christ. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to do before we dive into our text this morning. The first thing is this. I want to kind of cast out a presupposition you might have as we walk through this. 
And perhaps it is that the first thought you have in regard to teaching as disciple-making is that that is the task specifically of the pastor or elder. And friends, first off, there is a reality to that. There is a clear call upon, um, um, to the pastors and elders to be teachers of the word, to constantly be giving out sound teaching and doctrine. That's the premise of this office. We want to bring you the gospel. We want to teach you and train you that you might be equipped for every good work and that you might be prepared to do the work of the ministry. That is absolutely a fact. But oftentimes we find ourselves excluding general faithfulness in day-to-day life, the discipleship and proclamation that we give to one another because we have relegated it to the office of pastor. This is not helpful nor profitable. The saints of God have been, as a matter of fact, the whole premise of Ephesians 4, the giving of teachers and shepherds, is that the saints of God might be equipped for the work of the ministry. That means there is a presupposition in Paul's argument that the saints are to be doing the work of the ministry. That means the saints of God are to be teaching. They are to be edifying one another day to day. As a matter of fact, I think there's really no greater evidence of a healthy church than when the saints of God are encouraging and strengthening one another in everyday life. That as you are walking through life together, that there is a brother or sister in the congregation that you are part of that you can call. And as you call them, you know for certain one thing, they are going to point you to Jesus. Not only are they gonna point you to Jesus, you're probably, by the time you hang up the phone, gonna just need a moment to sing. That's the health of a local church, the ever constant teaching and pointing of each other to Jesus. And so what I wanna do this morning is I want to walk us through both the commands that Christ has given to the church about teaching and disciple making. And then I wanna examine our methodology. How is it that we are to do this? So the methodology is really where we're going to anchor most of our time. And that will be found in Colossians chapter one. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter one, starting in verse 28, we'll make our way to the end of the chapter. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Colossians chapter one, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Father, may it be true this morning, him we proclaim. Lord, as we come, we have no other proclamation. The New Testament authors had no other proclamation. The Old Testament saints had no other proclamation. Him we proclaim. So Father, even as we examine the way that we are to teach, the way that we are to train the people of God, may we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, for he is the method. So Father, as we come, I ask that you would... Use this for the encouragement and edification of the body that you would strengthen the saints, that you would give them drive and passion, that you would give them an eagerness about disciple-making, that it would be their great joy to teach others around them, that they might worship Christ together. So, Father, I come confessing to you frailty and weakness. The task is too great. But, Lord, I am reminded even in this passage that we toil, we struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So, Father, that is where we cast our hope this morning. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is evangelism's endless end is discipleship. Evangelism's endless end is discipleship. I already saw someone squint their eyes at that. Let me explain. 
The beauty of evangelism, the beauty of preaching Christ to someone and seeing them come to saving faith is you have, by God's grace, just embarked on a journey that sensually knows no end. And what I mean by that is, as we come here and we consider discipleship, the whole premise of discipleship is that we're growing up into him who is our head, that we are growing in grace, that we are coming to deeper understanding and knowledge of Christ, which naturally leads to, as we say here quite often, affection. That the purpose of disciple making is to walk with someone in their growth in the Lord and teach them and train them. But what we are aiming to do, first and foremost, is to see them grow in affection for Christ. That is the true measure of effective disciple making, in my opinion. It is not behavior modification. It's not them looking more like you. It's them having a deeper love for Christ. It's them understanding the finished work of Jesus in a way that really does permeate every area of their life. So when I say that evangelism's in end is discipleship. It means that we are ever constantly in this process. First, we are in this process as those who are being made more like Jesus daily. But we are also in this process by giving of our time, talents, and energies to seeing the person and work of Christ come to deeper fruition in an individual's life. They have trusted Christ as Lord God and Savior, and we want to see them know Him in every area, that they would have to look at their life and try to find a place where Jesus doesn't fit, because He fits everywhere. He is the central theme of the Christian's life in every capacity. And so the hope of discipleship is to walk the next step past evangelism and walk with people in their grasping and growing of affection for Christ. Now, that works itself out in two ways. There are two major commands that we have in Scripture in regard to teaching, in regard to discipleship. Now, the first one is found in the Great Commission, and I would imagine all of us are quite familiar with this one. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in short, we are commanded to teach those who have been baptized to obey all that Christ commanded. Now, in that claim, there is something rather exclusive. What's exclusive? that our aim in disciple-making is to those who have been baptized. In short, it is to those who are already in Christ, that there is something that goes beyond just seeing them come to saving faith. It is a walking with them through life to point them to Jesus over and over again. I think the most simple way we see this played out is obviously inside the local church. Inside the local church that is operating effectively, there's ever constantly saints who are pointing you and teaching you and telling you, look to Jesus. And so discipleship in the clearest sense is that we are teaching and training those who have been baptized. Now, this does lead us to a very important question. And it's one that I hear answered yes more frequently than I'd like. And the simple question is this, is it possible to fulfill the Great Commission without teaching? Is it possible to fulfill the Great Commission without teaching, without teaching men to obey, without teaching men all that Christ has told us to teach them? The answer is a resounding no. But I hear this question answered yes so regularly that the Great Commission is essentially the proclamation of the gospel. And once you see a convert, it's done. We have fulfilled our obligation to the Great Commission. In no way, shape, form, or fashion does Christ presume that in his giving of the Great Commission. It is innate within it that we are first and foremost proclaiming the gospel to those, to a people, as we already heard read, a people yet unborn. But it is not the abandonment of those people after they come to saving faith. Instead, it is 
is a hands-on walking with, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. As you see very clearly in Matthew 28, in verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is innate within the Great Commission. Friends, if I could tell us, if I could just renovate every mindset of the Great Commission, it would be that there is no possibility of fulfilling it if you are not willing to teach and train those who come to saving faith. One of the reasons that our, uh, our understanding of missions is linked so closely to church planting is because oftentimes I see missions done more in the sense of going, giving a gospel message and abandoning the saints that have come to faith there. That is unhelpful altogether. Instead, what we do, we go, we proclaim the gospel through people who are dedicated to live their lives there, to shepherd, to pastor, to train, and see a congregation birth that will naturally work out the Great Commission. To do one and not the other is essentially to go to take ground, to leave it in abandonment, and it will be quickly taken again. When we go to do missions, we go to do missions to proclaim the gospel, to see people come to faith baptized, but also to walk with them, to continue with them in discipleship, that they might grow up into him who is their head, into Christ. And so the question has to be asked, though, since it is commanded and it is necessary, what is the substance of our teaching? Well, it says here, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, let's just consider a couple of things that we see that our Lord teaches. Well, we see very clearly from Matthew chapter 5 throughout uh, chapter 7, we see the Sermon on the Mount. First and foremost, and friends, we often perhaps under, uh, we kind of suppress this, but the reality is we are to teach them to obey his moral commands. We are to teach saints to obey the moral commands of Christ. It should not be a surprise when we sit down with a new believer and we are hearing them rage about an individual that they hate in the, like, the depths of their souls. And we look at them and say, friend, if you are hating them, you are murdering them. That is the clear command that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are looking at someone and hating them, you are in violation of his command. It shouldn't be a surprise when we sit down with one who has come to faith as they are growing in the Lord and they're speaking of their lust after someone that we look at them and say that you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. We must teach the moral commands of God. We must very clearly teach what Christ has commanded in particularly at bare minimum in the Sermon on the Mount. We teach them to obey the moral commands. Now we do this because we long to see them bring honor to the gospel. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I urge you, beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Friends, those who have professed faith in Christ and live a licentious lifestyle do nothing but bring reproach on the glory of God. They do nothing but bring reproach on the effectiveness of the spirit. They do nothing but bring reproach on the loveliness of Christ. Friends, if there is a gospel that does not change how we live, then it is no gospel at all. The reality is that we go forth preaching and teaching what Christ has commanded because we long for when people look into that individual's life who they perhaps just saw baptized, they give great rejoicing to God because their life is different. Something has changed. And we must teach them the moral commands of Christ. Secondly, we must teach them to observe his ordinances. This morning, we had the opportunity of coming to the Lord's table. And what a joy it is to come to the Lord's table. But friends, how did you know that it was a joy to come to the Lord's table? How do you know when you come that you're looking at the, the, a, a physical representation of the finished work of Jesus, the body that's broken on your behalf, the blood that was shed to bring you into the new covenant, the, the blood that was shed and, and when Christ drank the cup of God's wrath and you sit here and you drink this fruit of the vine and all it is in your mouth is sweet. How did you know that that's linked to Jesus drinking the bitter cup? How did you know that when you bite into 
the bread, you see the perfect Son of God crushed for us. By the teaching of the Word. By the proclamation of the Gospel. And so we must teach people to observe the ordinance. How did you know when you see someone come to saving faith, you see them go down into that water and raised to newness of life, that in that picture you see both judgment and resurrection. You see that those who go through that water have died with Christ and praise be to God, they will live with Him. Why do we teach these things? Because the saints of God need to know these and we would assume that God has revealed them for a purpose. It is not though as though He has revealed things to us that are needless altogether. Instead, we should assume that if He has revealed them, then they are for our benefit and profit. And so we see that we are to teach them to obey His moral commands. We teach them to observe His ordinances. And according to John 15, 12, we see that Jesus teaches that you love one another as I have loved you. We are to teach those who have come to saving faith to love His people. Sometimes this is hard, is it not? To look at other saints that you know are in Christ, praise be to God for that, but you're just thinking to yourself, perhaps it is, I don't want to like have fellowship with them on a regular basis. Friends, you're called to love the saints. It's a clear command of Christ that we love one another. And this love that we have for one another is so unique that it often will create, uh, an, uh, in the mind of an unbeliever, looking at, out at this, they see there's something unique about this. There's something, there's something different. What is their unity? How is it? Why is it they love one another despite the fact that they're so different from one another? They see these things. This is what we are to teach. And lastly, we teach them to love the Lord their God. Now, can I be honest with you? As I read through this and as I'm considering the, the teachings of Christ and how we're to teach those who have come to saving faith, my first thought is... Um, I can perhaps teach the moral commands. I can perhaps teach the observance of the ordinances. But it's very difficult to teach the saints to love his people. It's very difficult, even more so perhaps, to teach the saints to love the Lord their God. How is it that we are to accomplish this great task? How is it that we are to look at each of these things, these things that Christ has commanded that we teach to one another, and we actually are to do them? It's commanded that we do them. We'll answer that when we look at the methodology. But first and foremost, we see that we are commanded to teach those who have been baptized to obey all that Christ commanded. Now, secondly, we see another command as Paul writes to Timothy. Paul writes that we are to teach sound doctrine. Titus 2, 1 says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Friends, there's perhaps no greater charge that um, this pulpit perhaps has undergone is that all we care about is doctrine. Um, yeah, that's true. I love the doctrine that Scripture has put forth. It causes me to grow in my affection for Jesus. It causes me to love the saints of God. Friends, if this pulpit ever stops teaching doctrine, I would encourage you to leave. Because that is the command that Paul gives to Timothy. I would argue that is the command that Christ gave to the disciples and subsequently the shepherds and teachers. A church that doesn't teach doctrine has abandoned their call. We come and we preach doctrine because the teaching that is in accordance with sound doctrine is the teaching of Christ and Him crucified. And we never stop proclaiming that message. And so we are to teach sound doctrine. And we are to do so without wavering. Now, a couple of things that are important to note here. First, Jesus gave teachers to the church so that they would be equipped for the work of the ministry. We already saw this recently as we concluded the book of John. We saw Peter's uh, conversation with Jesus. And what does Jesus tell Peter? 
feed my sheep. What is that clearly linked to? Even Peter makes reference to this later on in his epistle. In 1 Peter 5, he says, as a good shepherd in Christ. The whole premise is that we're feeding the flock of God with the clear teaching that that Scripture has given us. We teach that which the Spirit has inspired. Now, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, here's what's important, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The whole premise of anyone standing up here to preach the word anytime you sit down in discipleship is not so that you can grow a bit more heady, right? We want to know the Lord, just we want to know him rightly. But the whole premise is that you will be engaged in the work of the ministry. No saint is excluded from preaching the gospel. None. It is not, has never been a reality. If you sit in here and you think to yourself, well, that's the pastor's job. We've missed it all together. What we are to be doing, as a matter of fact, I would say the great joy of the Christian life is proclaiming the gospel to those who have not heard it. Even perhaps adding to that, proclaiming the gospel to those who delight in it as well. That there is a constant refrain of gospel preaching to one another. We are to be engaged in the work of the ministry simply as saints. Now, we also know from 1 Timothy 4.13 and Titus 1.9 that the apostles demanded that sound doctrine be taught and defended. Taught and defended. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It's demanded. We must be exhorting and teaching. We must be even giving ourselves the public reading of Scripture. This is the call of discipleship. Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, this is the one that people are like, don't do that. Don't do that. Saints, it is our responsibility, not in a brawling sense, but to defend the doctrine of Christ. We find ourselves rather quick to defend political parties. And oftentimes, we're rather slow to defend the glory of Christ. May it never be said of us. When we go forth to preach the gospel, when we think and we meditate upon doctrine, we do so at the command of the apostles, but we do so primarily because we love the glory of God. We delight in it. And, and should we see it assaulted, friends, it's, I find myself rather quick to give a defense. We must be people who give a defense. Now, we also must understand that doctrine is to be derived from, from what has been revealed. I love what 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says. We're all familiar with this one. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We only teach with what, which, what has been revealed. We teach the scriptures. And when the scriptures have revealed something, we must teach it with vigor. We must do so with boldness and passion, do so with certainty for the eternally wise God saw fit to give it for the edification of the local church. When we stumble upon things most certainly that have not been revealed, we should be silent and rest in the fact that if God had so designed that information for the edification of the local church, he would have revealed it. We do well to remember that if God has revealed it to the church, we should assume that it is for our good to know it. There is a laziness inside often the soul of the saint, that I must not delve into these things too deep. I must not look too far. I must not study too hard. Friends, that may it never be said of us. As a matter of fact, it is almost presumed that that is a foreign things altogether. Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes so clear that things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And indeed, there are mysteries in the scriptures. And when there are mysteries, oftentimes we do well to stop and just meditate upon the transcendence of God, that he is loftier than we are. But should it have been revealed, then we teach it and we teach it with boldness and without apology. 
We preach what the scripture has been revealed. When we teach those who have come to saving faith, who've been brought into the family of God, we teach them everything the scripture has to offer them. We do not keep anything from them as if we are trying to uh, preserve them from some difficulty. Friends, if God has revealed it, we do well to think, just presume that the infinitely wise God gave it to us for our good. It should not be a surprise when we open our Bibles to passages that perhaps seem difficult and said, it's worth laboring here. Because it is worth laboring here. Why? Because the central theme of every passage is the person and work of Christ. When we study, when we look into them, our longing as we look is to see Jesus and to see his work. Now, but what's the end of training people in sound doctrine? What's the purpose of doing that? Why, why is it that we emphasize this so heavily? We have means to sit down and to study the scriptures. We have a Thursday morning systematic study. What's the point of that? What's the point of proclaiming doctrine from the pulpit? What's the point of a woman's time to sit down and to look at the deep things of God? Is it so that you might have a theological flex point? No, there is a chief end. And we'll see that here in a moment. So what then is our methodology? We've been called to do two great things, to teach all that Christ has commanded, all that we, he has commanded. We're to teach those who've been baptized to obey. And secondly, we're to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Those are the calls of discipleship. But how is it that we can do that? I mean, friends, this seems rather lofty. Well, he gives us the answer in Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. Just like we examined evangelism, we looked at Peter's methodology. I want to look at Paul's methodology. How is it that Paul did this? Because I mean, what a great task Paul was given. And, and he does it so gloriously. And here's how he does it. Him we proclaim. And you really can just almost stop there. Because as you look at this, the central theme of Paul's ministry, the central theme of his teaching, of his discipleship, of his training even of young pastors is to simply proclaim the glory of God in Christ. You see this at the introduction of every single one of his books. Every book, perhaps save Galatians, he introduces it meditating upon the finished work of Christ. He is considering the glorious gospel of Jesus. He always begins there. He starts with this clear proclamation. And so I think we can safely say that Paul's methodology was to warn and teach by the proclamation of Christ. The whole premise of his evangelism, the whole premise of his discipleship is to preach Jesus to them. When they feel like they have been warned, they have been warned in Christ. When they feel like they have been taught, they have been taught of Jesus. Now, I wanna give this a couple of, I wanna look at this from one major perspective. We've already examined that as we are in the Great Commission, we are called to teach all that Christ has called us to teach. We are to, teach people to obey. So let's ask the question, how are we to teach people Jesus's moral commands? I can run them through the Sermon on the Mount. That is not a difficult task. I can run them through the Ten Commandments, also not a difficult task, but that actually isn't the task. The task is to teach them to obey. Well, I would argue that if we were to teach men to obey Jesus's moral commands, we should point them to the finished work of Christ. We should point them not to just looking at the teaching, but looking at who he is in his essence. Look at him, be faithful to obey all that the law has demanded of him. Look at him go down, to die silently like a sheep before his shearers. He could have easily rebuked. He could have easily done anything to stop what was occurring. But what you saw there was what? Perfect faithfulness. You saw flawless faithfulness. You want to see what it looks like to love one another? You look at the person and work of Jesus. You want to obey him by not lusting, then you look at Christ and find in him your superior joy. 
The whole premise of looking unto Jesus, the whole premise of Paul's methodology is that if we want people to obey the moral law of God, point them to Christ. If their eyes are fixed there, it's incredibly difficult to disobey him. When we consider repentance, oftentimes we think about it like an apology. That's not the premise. The premise of repentance is that you have repented by grace through faith and you have looked at the person of Christ and should you follow him faithfully, your eyes will never be cast away. You will run to him and in running to him, it's very hard to trespass against him. It, as a matter of fact, it seems as though it's almost an impossibility. Friends, we stumble and we fall. But if we wanna obey the moral commands of God, we do as Paul said, we proclaim Christ, we look to him. And in looking to him, I find that it's much easier to obey him. But when I'm looking at obedience for the sake of obedience, my goodness, it's complex. It's so difficult. I find that my feet are always wrapped up. But Hebrews 12 reminds us, what are we to do? We're to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we want to teach men to obey Jesus' moral commands. We tell them, look to Jesus, look at him, follow him. Now, how is it that we're to teach men to observe the ordinances? Friends, how did Paul teach them to obey the ordinances? He showed them Christ in the ordinances. When we come to this table and we see just a cup or just a piece of bread, what do we have? We have something that probably will not nourish our bodies super effectively, but when we see in it the mysteries, when we see in it the blood of the new covenant, when we see in it the new veil that is Christ's flesh and by it we can enter into his presence, all of a sudden it is a delight to come to that table when we see men go down under the water in baptism, we see the judgment of God on them, but then they come out. We see the finished work of Jesus to absorb the wrath of God and give grace without measure. You see, if we teach them Christ in the ordinances, you can't keep the saints away from them. They long to participate in them. They long to see it done. They long to taste the fruit of the vine and know that it's a better cup than they had before. They long to bite into that bread and see that there is a means of entry and it is through his flesh. You see, when we teach Christ in the ordinances, just as Paul does, it seems as though that we are teaching men to obey all that Christ has commanded by simply pointing them to Christ in the ordinances. We point them there that they might think upon it and meditate on it. So as they come, all they can do is have their minds filled with the glory of Christ. They delight in them. How is it that we are to teach the saints to love one another? We show them the love of Christ for the saints. But have you ever stopped to consider, I mean, we do this often and we've come to this major premise over and over again. The reason that we love one another is that we are all united in the finished work of Jesus that when you look to the cross and you see yourself there, all your brothers and sisters were there as well. When you see Christ raised and that's your hope of glory, you look at your brothers and sisters who have seen Christ in the resurrection and they are there as well. And when you look forward into eternity and you look forward to gathering around the throne to sing praises to Christ forevermore, do you know who's there? Your brothers and sisters. It is only reasonable that those whom were given to the Son in eternity past and will be kept forever in eternity future might delight here just temporarily in each other. We love one another. We love one another because we are in Christ. And secondly, because Christ is in each saint. The spirit of God is in each saint. It is an impossibility for the saints to hate one another. It is a reality that should we see Christ in them, should we see the spirit of God working in them, how can we do anything but have a great love for them? Because in them is the hope of glory. 
And so what do we do when we want to teach the saints to love one another? We point them to Christ in each saint. We go a bit further. What do we do when we want to teach the saints to love the Father? We show them Christ's love for them. Isn't isn't it so unique that as we understand the love of Christ for us, it is almost innate within us to bestow upon him love. As we grow in knowledge of him, it it is the natural response that we love him all the more as we understand his love for us all the more. That for us to love Christ, for us to grow in knowledge of him is the natural tendency. We, we love him, thus we want to know him more. As we know him more, it seems as though it's an endless cycle of affection that we grow in knowledge of God. And that as we grow in knowledge of him, we see Christ more clearly. As we see him more clearly, we love him more deeply. It is an endless cycle of affection. How is it that we're to teach people to observe, to obey all that Christ commanded? We point to Christ in every command. We make it clear that there in it is Jesus. We show them the love that Christ has for them and they naturally love the Father. They naturally obey. We often have removed the concept of affection from obedience. It cannot be done. Affection gives way to obedience. Love and affection gives way to faithful living. Friends, it is no surprise that there is high moral commands inside the Christian faith. But should we aim to just see moral commands and not affection, then we are legalists altogether. Friends, if we do all of these things, if we presume that we have done all that Jesus has taught, but we do not adore him, we've missed it altogether. But if we adore him, it is natural that we obey him. And so we want to follow Paul's methodology. We want to proclaim Christ over them. We want to teach them in Christ. We want to warn them in Christ. But we also need to understand that in our discipleship, there is an end. The end of discipleship is that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Just notice what the language says in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. You know, when I look back at the doctrine section of this, we were to teach doctrine. Friends, the purpose of teaching doctrine, the purpose of proclaiming what Scripture has revealed is not that you can be a bit better in your arguments. It's not that you can defend a certain system. It's that you grow in affection for Jesus and that you grow in the grace of Christ. The whole concept of understanding the doctrines that Christ has revealed in Scripture is that you might love the Christ of Scripture more. Apart from that, then once again, all we are is exercising some form of perhaps intellectualism or legalism. But true discipleship aims to see each and every individual grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. I love what Ephesians 4.15 says. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We teach brothers and sisters that we might see Christ in them all the more. We pour out our own learning as we have come to know and understand Jesus through our lives, we pour that out on other saints that they might rejoice with us. And so we aim to be faithful in gospel proclamation and doctrinal teaching that people might grow into the fullness of the measure of stature of Christ. But secondly, we teach that those who hear might find themselves steady in Christ. I love the song we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. The reason I love it is because I often need to be reminded that he will indeed hold me fast, that my salvation is not rooted in my ability to hold on to him tightly, but instead it is rooted in his ability to hold me and his hands are indeed omnipotent. He will not lose me. Why is it that we teach doctrine? 
We teach doctrine that the saints might rest in Christ. They might delight in him because, friends, I'm convinced that a secure saint sings his praises loudly. Listen to what Ephesians 4, 13 through 14 says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We teach doctrine because we want the saints to be anchored in the glorious gospel of Christ that is secure. It gives them hope and confidence in life. It gives them a means to say, if I look at myself, as we've said before, there's no way I can be saved, but in Christ I can think of no way I can be lost. It's to teach doctrine that they might understand, that they might have a great security in Christ. In short, I think we can say this. Our teaching isn't to fill the head of the saints with information that they can flex. It is the feeding of sheep that they might be anchored in Christ and constantly grow in affection for Him. The premise of disciple-making is to see people adore Christ more. Now, you look at even all of this and you think to yourself, it is an impossibility. How is it that... Any saint can labor in discipleship to see people grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Well, Paul once again answers this for us in verse 29. He says, for this, so to the end of seeing everyone presented mature in Christ, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. How is it that we aim to do discipleship? How is it that we see people grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ? Friends, yes, indeed, we labor. We faithfully labor. But we faithfully labor in light of one great thing, The source of our laboring is rooted in the energy that he powerfully works and wills within us. Discipleship is an impossibility apart from the Spirit of God working it out. But with the Spirit of God, what great confidence. And not only that, we can even look at it as a certain promise because we know that all those whom God has foreknown, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why is it? What is our motivation? What pushes us forward in discipleship? It's resting on the promises of God that all the saints will indeed be given the Spirit of God who will renovate them, who will renew them, who will sanctify them, conform them to the image of Christ all the more. And we simply come alongside that with the Spirit of God in us preaching Christ to them. And we will watch with certainty God do that great work of growing saints in the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. The reason we are about discipleship here is because God has given us a promise that the saints will grow in grace. Will, not a negotiable. They will grow in grace. And so we labor, we evangelize, we look to Jesus in our own lives, knowing that he will bring to completion what he began. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing in the fact that discipleship that you have called us to is a lofty task, that apart from the Spirit of God giving us the energy, it would be an impossibility. Apart from the Spirit of God doing that great work to conform them to the image of Christ, there is nothing that we could do. But Lord, we go forth proclaiming Christ. We go forth ever constantly calling the saints to look to Jesus. For Father, He is where they began and He is the end. So Father, why is it that we come to consider these things? Because we're reminded that the saints as collected are your bride. Lord, even as you say in Ephesians 5, when we put this forward that you might present your bride to yourself without stain, wrinkle, or any such thing. Lord, we know that you do that through the Spirit's working and the Spirit's even interaction in the local body. So Father, help us. 
Help us to proclaim Christ. Help us to preach Him. Help us to look unto Him. Help us to obey Him, born of affection. Father, we ask you to do this in the wonderful name of Christ, who is able to save. It is in His name and through His blood we pray. Amen.